You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Uh, so I know that we canceled service this morning because we didn't want everyone to have to get out in this cold, uh, but it's still the Lord's Day. And so I just want to encourage everybody to still use this time to worship the Lord. Uh, even if it's just with your family, uh, on your couch, in your living room, you know, even if you can't go anywhere because of the snow, um, I just want to encourage us to still use the Lord's Day to uh, worship the Lord. So we're going to spend some time together, even though we're separated from one another, uh, studying God's Word this morning, just like we always do. Uh, but I do want to let everybody know that we are going to pause uh, this morning uh, from the sermon series that we've been doing uh, on the book of Nehemiah, because uh, I know that not everybody is going to have access to Facebook or the podcast, uh, and so I don't want to leave anybody behind. So what I want to do this morning um, is I'm actually just going to preach kind of a standalone message uh, from the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and uh, turn there. Uh, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 of Colossians. And I want to take this opportunity um, just to answer a question that many Christians um, often ask themselves from time to time, uh, which is, what exactly is the goal of the gospel. I mean, yes, we understand as Christians uh, that the gospel restores our relationship with the Lord. Uh, it allows us to spend eternity with him in heaven. Uh, but for some, that's really all they see the gospel as. You know, it's just kind of a spiritual fire insurance. Uh, and so for many Christians, they're, they're really not sure what they're supposed to do after they become a Christian. You know, it's kind of like a dog chasing a car. Uh, if the dog actually ever caught up with the car, it probably wouldn't know what to, to do with it after it finally caught it. Uh, so what is the goal of the gospel? Um, after you submit your life to Jesus, you know, what is the, the rest of your life supposed to look like after that? Uh, well, Paul answers that question pretty well in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 28 through uh, 29. So let me read that for you real quick. He writes, Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Then Paul goes on to say, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. All right, so if I could just give you a one-word summary of what Paul's talking about there, uh, it would be discipleship. That's what presenting everyone uh, mature in Christ really means. Uh, it's about being discipled and about growing in your maturity in the faith. So that's really the, the short answer 
of the goal of the gospel. It's discipleship uh, and being presented as mature in Christ. But I just kind of want to unpack that a little bit more as well. Um, and I want to ask three additional questions to kind of help us have a, uh, a deeper, more meaningful answer to that initial question as to what is the goal of the gospel. Right? If the goal of the gospel is discipleship, then we also need to ask ourselves, how should we define discipleship? Um, how do we achieve it? Then we should also ask ourselves, what is the cost? So question number one, um, how should we uh, define discipleship? If you turn over in your Bible, you flip through the pages, cover to cover, uh, you're never actually going to see a specific definition um, even though it's a, a biblical concept, uh, it, it's not technically a biblical word. Right? Nowhere in Paul's writings is he ever going to use the word disciple. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to see the term discipleship. Uh, but even though it's not explicit, it definitely is an implicit concept. Right? In the very first part of verse 28 of our text, Though Paul never uses that word, he's actually giving us a definition. Uh, and he's not even just giving us a definition for what discipleship is. He's also given us a definition for what evangelism is. Right? He says that we must proclaim Christ and warn everyone. That's evangelism. And then teach everyone with all wisdom. That's discipleship. I just kind of want to dwell on Paul's definition here for just a bit. Uh, because some Christians, we, we have kind of this misconception uh, that discipleship uh, and evangelism are really just two completely different things. And I'm not saying that there's no differences, uh, but sometimes we, we make them out to be more different from one another than they really are. All right, so first, we think that you have to have evangelism. Right, you must use the gospel to warn those who are not yet followers of Jesus. And then after they repent and believe in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, well, then you can move on to that process of teaching and discipling them and all of the wisdom of Christ. So first evangelism and then discipleship, two completely separate things. But, but that's not actually what this verse is teaching. Paul argues that as you proclaim Jesus, uh, everyone should be warned and everyone should be taught with all wisdom. So sometimes it's actually the Christians that need to be warned the most and have the gospel preached to them all over again because they've drifted away from it. And sometimes it's actually the unbelievers that need to be patiently taught and discipled even before they've made a profession of faith, All right? Sometimes the lines between discipleship and evangelism in the Bible, sometimes those lines are a, a bit blurry. So as we're thinking about those definitions, um, I just want to make a couple of connections for you uh, between evangelism and discipleship uh, as it relates to this passage. 
I think understanding the relationship between the two uh, will kind of give you a, a clearer picture for our definition of biblical discipleship. All right, so connection number one is that evangelism doesn't stop uh, when discipleship begins. Right? Evangelism doesn't stop when discipleship begins. Uh, Christians often think that uh, they are, once you are saved, you, you know, are no longer in, in need of evangelism. Nobody needs to go out and evangelize to you. Uh, but Paul says that everyone, which would include followers of Jesus, need to be warned in order to be presented as mature in Christ. So as Christians, we must evangelize to ourselves every day. That, that's what discipleship really is. Uh, if you, you want to write down a definition, write this definition down. Discipleship is simply connecting the gospel to lingering areas of unbelief. It's connecting the gospel to lingering areas of unbelief. When you become a follower of Christ, though the war for your faith has been won, there are still a whole lot of battles that are still going to be had, where you're still going to have to connect the gospel to those areas in your life where there's still that lingering unbelief. Jesus talked about that uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. All right, so Jesus himself says that the gospel is not a one-time decision that you make, but rather it is a daily decision. Each and every day, in every area of your life, you're given the choice between choosing yourself or choosing the gospel, choosing to follow you or choosing to follow Jesus. And as you uh, and those close to you begin to see your need for Jesus in every area of your life, that's where discipleship really begins. All right, so that's connection number one. Connection number two, though, is that discipleship doesn't start only when evangelism is over. Right? Not only does evangelism not stop when discipleship begins, neither does discipleship only start when evangelism is over. All right, if our de definition for discipleship is just connecting the gospel to lingering areas of unbelief, well, then it's the unbeliever that really needs to be discipled the most. So, so there's a sense in which evangelism is really just the discipleship of those who have yet to believe. All right, you see this all over uh, the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, in his public ministry. All right, Jesus discipled the disciples long before they ever came to believe that he was Lord. So in the Gospel of Mark, for example, chapter 1, you've got what is often called the seaside call, where Jesus tells a bunch of these young fishermen to drop their nets, to follow him, and he'll make them fishers of men. So those disciples 
Uh, they start to follow him in chapter one, but it, it's not until all the way in Mark chapter eight that they really begin to understand what being a disciple of Jesus actually means. Uh, if you flip over to Mark chapter eight, at that point in Jesus's ministry, um, he had already performed numerous miracles, numerous uh, healings. Um, he, had even, he had miraculously fed thousands of people. Uh, and in the wake of all of that, there's this almost comedic moment. There's this story where Jesus finds himself on a boat with his disciples, uh, and they are upset because they forgot to bring bread with them, all right? So they're, they're sitting on the boat right next to the living God of the universe who created everything, who they've already witnessed, multiplied on a couple of different occasions. Jesus uh, take, you know, these tiny loaves of bread and turn it into an entire feast of bread for people, and then here on this boat, they are complaining that they themselves forgot to bring bread on the boat ride. And so starting in verse 17 of chapter 8, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples. And I could just imagine what was going on in Jesus's head. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he just kind of wanted to, to pull his hair out. I'm sure he was frustrated. Uh, but he turned to them and he said, why? Are you discussing the fact that we have no bread? All right, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? All right, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? So, so for being Jesus' disciples, these disciples don't really seem to have a, a good grasp on who Jesus really was. And so it's just a couple of verses after that that Jesus will finally ask the disciples what they really believe about him and, and who they really say that he is. And that's when, for the first time in, in the Gospel of Mark, you have Jesus finally call, or you have Peter finally call Jesus the Christ. All right, but that's been a long, long journey to get to that point between Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 8, where Jesus has patiently taught and discipled the disciples long before they actually believed in him and realized who he was. Uh, so discipleship often comes long before uh, evangelism. Actually, discipleship is, is often a, a part of uh, that evangelistic process. So now I think we've got a solid definition of discipleship. Uh, so I want to move on to the second question. All right? And the second question uh, is, is this. If, if we know what discipleship is, if we know how to define it, the second question is, how do we achieve it? All right? Because in the last half of verse 28, Paul writes that he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of the gospel, as we've said. But practically speaking, we have to now ask ourselves, how do we go about achieving that? And to, ask, to answer that question, I actually want to focus on two words uh, that are written there in verse 28 that give us a glimpse at how 
to, uh, to actually work towards that goal of being presented as mature in Christ. All right, so the first word that I want to focus on is we. All right, Paul says, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. All right, so who is the we that he is speaking of? Obviously, it would include himself. I'm sure it would have included the elders at the church that he's writing this letter to. Uh, but Paul wasn't just writing to pastors. All right, he was writing to the entire church. And indirectly, he was also writing to all of us today as well. All of those who are followers of Jesus even today. Paul is showing us here that discipleship is not just the job of one individual. Right? It's the job of the entire church, not just the pastor. All right, if you think that you pay me to be the primary figure in your life to disciple you and to, to mentor you and to present you as mature in Christ, well, I hate to tell you, uh, you are going to be sorely disappointed, right? Because that job of discipleship, that is too large of a task for any one individual to accomplish. Um, as the pastor uh, John Piper has often said, he said, sanctification is a community project, right? It's not something that you can do on your own. It is a community uh, effort, right? But the second word that I want to focus on is there at the end of verse 28, which is everyone. Paul says that his desire is that we may present everyone as mature in Christ. His goal is for everyone to disciple everyone else. You know, sometimes I think we falsely uh, see discipleship as kind of next level Christianity. Uh, it's only for uh, kind of the certain group of elite Christians, uh, usually involves, uh, you know, telling somebody that they need to go away to Bible college or seminary and get some kind of a formal education and training. Uh, but that's not what Paul had in mind. At its essence, uh, there's really only two things uh, that you need to do to make sure that everyone in the body of Christ is being brought up into spiritual maturity. Um, and you can see both of those things in the book of Hebrews. I want to read Hebrews chapter 10, one of my favorite verses in that book, uh, verses 24 and 25, uh, where the author says, uh, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so the author of Hebrews asks the question, how do we stir one another up to love and, and good works? And the first thing that he says is that we need presence. He writes, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. We need to be present with one another, right? We, we can't neglect that habit of meeting together. You can't disciple someone if you're not there with them. Both of you have to be present together. I, I know that we are all separated from one another right now because of the weather, 
but for discipleship to really take place, uh, whenever we're able to gather and worship together, we should. Uh, and to go a step further, being present doesn't just involve Sunday mornings either. It also means just taking the intentional time to go out to lunch with one another. Uh, it, it means uh, having coffee with one another, to invite one another into your homes. You have to be present in, in the lives of one another in order to know how to disciple and bring one another into maturity in Christ. And not just uh, present in the lives of those who you know, would already be your friends anyway, uh, but we're talking about stretching yourself too and, and to, to make sure that everyone in the church has other members, be it you or, or be it someone else, making sure that everybody in the body of Christ has others that we are all connected to and can be present with. All right, but then the other component that the author says is necessary for discipleship uh, is encouragement. Right? The author of Hebrews says that we must be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not simply enough to just you know stand in the same room together and just be breathing the same air as one another. Right? Discipleship is actually verbal. Right? You actually have to speak to one another. You actually have to encourage one another to press on through various trials and struggles and to continue that fight against sin. So, so you need to make sure that everyone is present and feels connected within the church. And then you also need to make sure that everyone is, is feeling encouraged and is being stirred up to love and good works. So now we've answered the first two questions, uh, how you should define discipleship, and then how do you achieve it? Uh, but lastly, I've got one more question for you as well, and that is, what is the cost? But let's look at the cost of discipleship, and that's where verse 29 comes in, and you see a couple of realities here on the cost of discipleship. Uh, first, we should see the magnitude of the cost. All right, if you didn't know this, uh, the, as Paul is writing this letter to Colossians, uh, he was actually in prison. He was being locked away because of his very desire to teach and to bring others into maturity in Christ. So, so Paul's own example shows us that discipleship is not just going to be about patting one another on the back. Right? It's a massive, costly commitment that involves you know, jumping down into the trenches and getting your, your hands dirty and fighting alongside one another. Uh, there's a, an old quote that I'm sure you're pr probably familiar with uh, about sin that says that Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Well, the same is actually true for discipleship as well. 
at least if you're doing it right. You'll often have to walk a lot further through the struggles that somebody else is facing. You're often going to have to stay up a lot uh, later in, in the evening having difficult conversations that need to be had with others. You're often going to have to pay a lot more in time and in energy than you ever expected in order to disciple one another and see one another growing in the, the faith. Right? Discipleship is costly. So we, we need to see the, the magnitude of that cost. But secondly, even though discipleship may cost much more than we anticipated, uh, I also want us to see the power, the power to persevere through those high costs and struggles, the, the power actually comes from the Lord. The last verse uh, that we're looking at, Paul uh, describes discipleship as a toil. In fact, he says that it's a struggle that takes all the energy that God can give him just to, to get him through. Uh, but that right there uh, should actually be our takeaway from this verse that the, the reality that the Lord does get him through, right? He faithfully provides for and sustains Paul through all of his struggles and through all of his imprisonments. I think half the, the battle of discipleship is simply realizing our own inadequacies. You know, when somebody else in the church is facing uh, a struggle, maybe in their marriage or at work or with their family, uh, it's a struggle that you have never faced before. And so when they come up to you and they start talking to you about it, you're going to be worried that they're going to ask you a question that you're not sure if you have an answer for. Or when they start talking to you about their struggles, there, there's that temptation for you to feel inadequate when it comes to being able to disciple them and help them and, and give them any advice because you have never faced a problem like this, right? But that is actually a good thing. Your inadequacies, that feeling that you have of being inadequate, that's actually a good thing because that's when you are forced to look at them and say, you know what, I don't have an answer to everything that you are struggling with. But I do know the one who does have the answer. And that's when the both of you can, can sit down and you can open up God's word together and you can point them to Christ, who is gonna be far better than you would ever be anyway of helping them through the struggles. Because he is the only one, Christ is the only one who will ever be able to sustain anyone through all of the difficulties they face. Right, so that's the goal of the gospel. It's everyone in the church linking arms with everyone else, uh, helping us all through those struggles that we face, uh, teaching us all just to continue that fight against sin so that we all might be presented as mature in Christ. And just as Paul says, you know, sometimes that's going to be a toil. Sometimes it's going to be a struggle, but it is a struggle that is worth it. All right? It is a struggle that comes with great joy because it's work 
that will leave an eternal impact on others. So let me just take a, a moment to pray for you all uh, as you think over uh, what God's word has said. Um, pray that, that everybody is safe today. Uh, pray that you are all staying warm uh, and know that I am looking forward to next Sunday when hopefully uh, we will be able to gather together once again uh, and study God's word together because that really is such a great joy. So let me pray for you all. Father, I'm thankful for just the um, wonders of modern technology that even though we are scattered uh, rather than gathered, uh, even though we are spread far apart, Father, uh, we are able to still come together in a sense to study your word. Um, I do pray uh, that even though we are able to study your word like this, that, that we never get too comfortable with it. Uh, that there still would be that longing, just as the author of Hebrews said, Father, uh, to gather together and not forsake that gathering so that we might be able to encourage one another and stir one another up in love and good works, Father. Um, so I pray that, that we would just desire to be able to come back and, and worship together next Sunday. Uh, but even in this week ahead, I pray that we would not be quick to forget all the truths that we have seen through this passage. Uh, we love you, Father, and we just want to give you all of the glory and the honor. Uh, we just say that in Jesus' name. Amen.